All right, welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. I'm thrilled to have you here with me today. This is test episode number two. I'm going to be releasing around five or ten of these episodes to make sure that the sound quality and the podcast format are up to the standards that you deserve as a listener. So if you're listening to this podcast, that means you've either been given a preview link, you've uh, snooped around and found it some other way, or the podcast has officially been released and you're going back to check out backed episodes. And whatever the case is there, I'm glad to have you here and I'm uh, would love to get some feedback to hear what you think of the podcast and what could make it better for you. Uh, with that, let's jump into today's episode. Right now, it is mid-February of 2019, and if you've been on social media over the past couple weeks, you have no doubt heard about the new abortion law that's just been passed in the state of New York. Like any other emotionally charged issue, the changes to the abortion law have led to plenty of controversy, and controversy always tends to breed misinformation. Now, in this episode, I'm going to explain what's in the new law, and then we're going to go into both sides of the abortion argument, and I'm actually going to change your mind on this controversial topic. If you don't believe it, just stick with me, and uh, it's going to happen, I'm telling you. So, there is a new law in New York that's been passed and signed into law. It's called the Reproductive Health Act. And everything that I'm going to be telling you about this law uh, was pulled up from factscheck.org. They are a pretty neutral, pretty straightforward site without a whole lot of bias, so I'm going to be linking to them in the show notes, so if that's something you want to look up and read about a little bit yourself, it'll be there. This new law was signed and supported by Governor Andrew Cuomo, who is obviously a pretty liberal Democrat governor, and um, it had previously failed in a GOP-controlled state Senate, but now there's a Democrat-controlled Senate, and they were able to pass it and get it through. What does it say? There's going to be a lot of quotes in here just so that we can get this exactly the way the law is written without any kind of spin on it or anything like that. And then maybe we'll go in and explain a little bit of what this means. So what does it say? It allows abortion according to a professional's, quote, reasonable and good faith professional judgment based on the facts of the patient's case. If the patient is within 24 weeks from the commencement of pregnancy or if there's an absence of fetal viability or if abortion is necessary to protect the patient's life or health, end quote. So in other words, women can have an abortion before 24 weeks pregnant. Pregnancies obviously range from 38 to 42 weeks. If the fetus isn't viable or if it's a danger to the patient's life or health, that determination must be made by a licensed, certified, or authorized healthcare practitioner under state law um, acting within his or her lawful scope of practice. So basically that means that it has to be somebody who is certified to talk about the actual birth of a baby. You can't just have your, you know, your eye doctor, your foot doctor, or whatever, uh, okay an abortion. Before this, abortions after 24 weeks were justified only in cases where the mother's life was at risk. What was the old law? Under the old law, abortion in New York was illegal unless it was a, quote, justifiable abortional act. This means it was within 24 weeks of the commencement of pregnancy or necessary to preserve the mother's life. And that word preserve uh, is emphasized here. So the new Reproductive Health Care Act, the RHA, it removes abortion from the state's penal code altogether. The homicide statute still defines a person as, quote, a human being who has been born 
and is alive, unquote. That means that killing a baby that has been born was and it still is considered a homicide. What does that mean? Um, it, it still means that if you kill a baby that has been born, it's still a homicide. The way that it used to be under the old law, women would have to travel out of state to terminate their pregnancies with fetuses that doctors said would not survive outside the womb. So if your child has some sort of birth defect, you know, sometimes their lungs don't develop. There's, there's a number of things that could happen, but basically the doctors will tell you this baby is not going to survive really any amount of time past birth. You know, they're going to be born and sometimes within a few hours or a few days, that baby is going to pass away. And a lot of times in that, those cases, the baby is in a lot of pain. It's in a lot of distress because it, it doesn't have the organs formed properly that it needs to survive. When this would happen, the way that it used to be would, be, would mean that those women are going to have to go out of state. They're going to have to take a trip somewhere else where it is legal to terminate this pregnancy if they want to do away with the child before they're born and have to see it suffer or anything like that. On the other hand, under the new law, since an unborn child isn't considered a person under the new laws, right, because we define a person as a, a person who has been born and is still alive, since the unborn child is no longer considered a person under the new law, it's much more difficult for a victim of abuse to prosecute her abuser if he causes her to lose an unborn child. And a lot of people have also argued that domestic violence rates actually increase during pregnancy. I wasn't able to find any statistics on that, but I can definitely see how that would be possible as obviously things get a lot more stressful uh, when someone's pregnant and emotions can run higher and all kinds of outside factors are contributing to what could be a more stressful household. So maybe that's true, but what that means here is that under the new law, that unborn child is no longer a person. So if, if he hurts the mother and the unborn child, he's only legally on the hook for hurting the mother because the unborn child isn't actually considered a person anymore. Now, the, the New York's, the new law, the RHA, also repealed a section of the public health law that required the following. Any abortions after 12 weeks had to be performed in a hospital. An additional physician had to be present for any abortions after 20 weeks to care for any live birth that is a result of the abortion. So if, they're, if they were attempting an abortion and that caused the baby to be born and the baby was alive, there needed to be a physician that was there on hand and that those babies had to be provided immediate legal protection under the laws of the state of New York. So once that baby's born, that baby is a person. It's no longer a fetus. It's no longer an unwanted clump of cells. It is a person once it's been born and it's protected under law and, and they have to try to take care of that baby and that baby has the same rights than anyone else would. Um, we don't have any real reliable statistics on that, but it is widely believed that those cases are incredibly rare. Um, doesn't happen very often anymore. Now, the idea behind removing that part of the law is that modern medicine allows much more successful abortions and much more competent care in the event that there is a problem. According to the Guttmacher Institute, which is uh, referenced several times throughout this, they are a pro-choice organization. So obviously you're going to have a, a kind of slant from that, but but I'm using them for a reason here and, and you can, you'll kind of see why in a couple of events. But According to the Guttmacher Institute, 
abortions don't result in live birth anymore. That's not something that happens as technology is advanced. Those kind of things don't happen anymore because they're much more sure of their methods. In the event that there was a live birth, the child would immediately be cared for and protected under New York state law, just like we said a minute ago. So going back to Roe v. Wade, the states may limit abortions after fetal viability, except in cases that it is necessary to preserve the life or health of the mother. Now, New York's old law only allowed late-term abortion to protect her life. Now, again, going back now, it says preserve the life or the health. So viability is defined as a point when a fetus is potentially able to live outside the mother's womb with or without artificial aid. Every fetus is different, but viability can typically start around um, 23 weeks. And there's going to be a lot of numbers here. You can write this down if you want or just kind of gloss over it. But basically, 23 weeks, they have a 20 to 35% survival rate. So, you know, say one in five, one in three, something like that. Um, at 24 or 25 weeks, that bumps up to 50 to 70%, so they have a better than 50% chance of survival. And then at 26 and 27 weeks, uh, it's 90% or above rate of survival rate. So viability is between 23 and 27 weeks. As long as that baby weighs a little bit over a pound, it's got a chance of surviving. Anything less than about 17 ounces, and it's probably not going to make it. Um, looking back at that, the fifth month of pregnancy is a pretty important turning point for the likelihood that that baby is going to survive anything that might happen to it. So a minute ago, it's a necessary to preserve the life or health of the mother. Now, what is health? Um, there's a companion case called Doe versus Bolton, and the U.S. Supreme Court held that medical judgment may be exercised in the light of all factors, whether that's physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and the woman's age, relevant to the well-being of the patient. All these factors may relate to health. This allows the attending physician the room he needs to make the best medical judgment. End of the quote there. Why is this important? Well, the word health covers a pretty broad spectrum and especially right now, mental health is getting a lot more attention and a lot more conversation around it in you know, the public sphere and news than maybe it ever has before. What that means is you could have people who are going to be jumping into that who may not necessarily have mental health issues that would be diagnosed by a doctor or that might actually be severe enough to be a real problem. But you're going to have people who could possibly use those things as an excuse that they're due to their mental health, they would need an abortion when otherwise they wouldn't be allowed to have one. Again, I'm not trying to call anybody out. I'm not trying to belittle anybody's issues that they may or may not have. I'm just saying that um, you all know the person who gets a head cold and they act like they're dying and that they're on their deathbed and that they're not going to make it. And in the same way, I think that there are some people who perhaps they have a bad day or they're a little bit anxious and suddenly they're going to say that they have clinical depression or they have clinical anxiety and that if people need to do this uh, as a means to give them a chance to have an abortion, that's a possibility that could happen. And that's one of the issues that's being brought up here with this law. Some of the mental health risks could easily 
include uh, the risk of postpartum depression. Um, their general stress level is going to go up because uh, if you've ever had a baby, you know they don't always sleep when they're supposed to. Long-term stress increases because you got to keep the kid in your house for at least 18 years or so. Financial stress because kids are pretty freaking expensive. And I think those things could all be legitimate issues, but at the same time, you could have somebody kind of stretching these things and exaggerating them so that they can justify getting a late-term abortion. Side note, according to the CDC in 2015, 65% of abortions occurred at or before eight weeks, and only 1% of those occurred after 21 weeks. Between 2006 and 2015, less than 9% of abortions were performed after 13 weeks. What that means is most abortions occur pretty early on in the pregnancy. This new law that allows those abortions to be performed a little bit later in the pregnancy doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have women who are seven to eight months pregnant flocking out to now get abortions that they wouldn't have been able to have before. Most of the time, common sense would say if you don't want to have this child, you're going to want to get rid of it as quickly as possible. You're not going to want to go through all the months of, of getting bigger and dealing with pregnancy issues and, and growing and all of this stuff just to you know, remove it at the last minute. You're going to be trying to get that out of the way as soon as possible. And a lot of these women who were going to be using this law because they have unborn children that aren't viable outside the womb, many of them were going out of state for abortions anyway. So the law doesn't really seem likely that it's going to increase the amount of abortions. However, I do kind of want to reiterate that if you use a broad definition for the word health, it does allow some exceptions to be made that maybe weren't there before. Along with this, while all of this stuff about New York is in the news, uh, the Virginia governor, Ralph Northam, made some comments that added a lot of fuel to the fire. There was a similar bill going through in Virginia um, so that they wouldn't have to get an ultrasound to get an abortion in the second trimester. And instead of three physicians, they were going to knock it down to only one physician who could declare abortion essential to the physical or mental health of the patient. Um, and they no longer have to prove that the damage to health would be substantial or irremediable. Again, kind of like the things that I mentioned could be an issue with the law in New York. Virginia actually spells that out even a little bit more clearly that you don't have to try so hard to say that this is going to be a traumatic experience for the mother to get permission to have the abortion in those later cases. Here's the quote from Governor, Governor Northam that uh, got everybody stirred up. Third trimester abortions are done in cases where there may be severe deformities. There may be a fetus that's non-viable. So in this particular example, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. And that's the end of the quote as far as I could find it. Now, I heard another clip of this quote, and I wasn't able to find it again. You may not want to quote me, you know, 100% directly on here, but this is how I recall the rest of that quote going. Um, someone pointed out to him and said, okay, so does that mean that if the baby were being born and the mother decided during the delivery of the child that she wanted to abort, would that allow for abortion? And the governor said, uh, the way that I understand it, the way the law is written, yes, yes, it would. It would allow for abortion. Obviously, 
you're going to have pro-life people really upset about this because essentially what he's saying is that this infant could be born and the mother could decide just to let it die if that's what her physicians wanted or if she decided she wanted an abortion when the baby was even partially born, that they would allow that. Now, I want to kind of go back just a, a half a step back because, again, this is such an emotionally charged issue that sometimes people hear certain terms and they, they jump to the worst case scenario or they um, just go complete hyperbole about what can actually happen. Now, I would imagine that there are probably laws in place in Virginia that says once a baby is born, it, it has the same rights as a person. I, I don't think that it would be that different from what's in New York. So I think that the governor misspoke and maybe – didn't quite understand what he was saying or or was just completely wrong about what he was saying but again I don't I wasn't able to dig up the rest of that quote as I had heard it when I listened to a discussion on the matter I just want to reiterate that again this is given with the circumstances in mind that you're talking about a baby who has been declared unable to live outside the womb these aren't healthy babies these aren't kids who are expected to to grow up into, you know, young children and young adults and and become adults themselves. These are kids who are not expected to survive very long. Um, however, it does bring up the question, would this open up possibilities for other situations where a child is maybe viable but disabled, right? Um, there are other countries who allow abortion for children with Down syndrome or children with other disabilities. And you've got to kind of ask yourself, you know, what are we opening ourselves up to here? Ultimately, these types of bills allow more options for parents with very difficult decisions. You know, if, you, if you're going to have a baby and you know that that baby's not going to live through the first week, you've got to ask yourself if, if you want to go through with the last couple months of pregnancy and, and go through with birth or, you know, what you're going to do there. I don't know what that situation's like. I can't imagine what that would feel like to be facing that kind of situation, but it happens. However, there's always going to be some gray areas where maybe people who have reasons that aren't as good can try to kind of squeeze themselves in under those laws and, and perhaps have an abortion when otherwise it wouldn't have been considered appropriate under the law. Basically, you've got two sides to this debate. You've got your pro-life people. You've got your pro-choice people. That's what we call those two camps. But what, what's in the name? Why do we say that? Well, in general... Our brain responds much better to positive statements rather than negative ones. If you're using a negative adjective like not or anti or non, they don't really register well with the way that our brain handles information. And it doesn't only work with like abstract ideas, like, like discussions that we would talk about, but it also works with concrete actions. Let's say like if you tried to quit a habit cold turkey, you're very unlikely to be successful at stopping that habit. You want to quit smoking, maybe you want to quit overeating, uh, maybe you want to stop drinking. If you just try to stop, the chances are it's not going to work. You're not going to be able to hold off on that. You're going to give in to temptation and you're going to pick it right back up. However, if you strive to replace that action with another action, you're able to form new habits based around the new actions. So, for example, instead of going out to smoke, maybe you work a crossword puzzle instead. Instead of getting a large order of fries, maybe you order a side salad instead. You choose to eat salad instead. Uh, instead of drinking alcohol, 
Find a new recipe for your new favorite juice or tea to bring from home when you go to those social situations where you're going to be tempted to drink. Those kind of things are much more likely to work as opposed to just not doing what you didn't want to do. The same thing goes for ideas and commands. So if you tell a child not to do something, what becomes their new focus, right? I'm going to do that thing. So when you say don't touch the electric socket, the brain looks right past the word don't, and instead you've turned the focus to touch the light socket. Even as adults, when somebody tells us we can't do something, no matter what it is, suddenly the idea becomes a lot more tantalizing, right? What am I missing? What? You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to find out for myself. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Keeping that in mind, the science is obvious behind calling these positions pro-life or pro-choice rather than anti-abortion or anti-fetus, anti-birth, anti-baby, whatever. There's nothing about either of those names that would really turn somebody off if they were being introduced to the idea for the first time. If you never heard about abortion before, I said, if I said, are you pro-life? You'd say, well, yeah, life is a good thing. People want to be alive. Of course I'm pro-life. And then maybe I'd ask if you were pro-choice and you would hear that term and you would think, well, choices are good. Everybody likes to have options. Um, of course I'm pro-choice, you know? They focus on the positive aspect, the, the action verb of that argument. And then when you're talking about people who are on the opposite side, then they're going to bring in the negative terms rather than the positive terms to the conversation. So you'll hear that Republicans are against women's ownership of their bodies, right? Republicans don't want to give women the right to choose. And you'll hear that Democrats have no dignity for the unborn, right? The, the Democrats want babies to die. They're baby killers, right? Even before any arguments have been made, these names have been set up to help you figure out where you identify and then to make sure that they draw a line in the sand so that you see that you're on the good side and these other, these other people are bad people and these people are on the bad side and they're wrong and they're against all of the right things. And it, it becomes a whole lot easier to become entrenched in an ideology and it becomes a whole lot easier to hate the right people when you can kind of dehumanize them and just see them as people who are against the things that we're against. Pro-life versus pro-choice. I'm going to give you a briefcase for each side. You know, what, what they're saying, the, their best arguments to kind of back up their positions. As we get into this, first of all, what about cases of rape and incest? Um, this argument is kind of often brought up as the exception to the rule or the most important reason why people should be allowed to have abortions. I'm not going to dig too deep into this, but I am going to say that we can see that rape victims sometimes want to keep the babies that come from their assault, and sometimes they don't. Of those pregnant rape victims that do have an abortion, sometimes they come to regret their decision to terminate, and other times they do not regret terminating that child. Every person in every situation is different. I'm not going to pretend to have answers for what a victim of that kind of trauma is supposed to do. Obviously, I'm a male. I haven't been raped. I can't get pregnant. There's no way I'm going to pretend like I would know anything about what that situation is like. So I don't have much of a comment on it, and I'm okay with that. And I, I think hopefully you should be too. With that in mind, I will say rape and incest have consistently been the reason for about 1% of abortions. There have been a bunch of surveys uh, I was able to go back to 1987, and they've, they've kind of consistently done these things over and over again, up all the way up to today. 
and the number always hovers around 1%. When you are talking about rape or incest and abortions because of that, you're talking about one out of every hundred. And I think if somebody is using this as the basis for their abortion argument, I think a lot of times they're just using this as an opening to have abortion for other reasons. It's not statistically relevant to the conversation, and it's a little bit dishonest. So if somebody's giving that argument, I don't give a whole lot of weight to that argument because I feel like what they're probably doing is they want to open the door to some abortions, a very, very small few, and a lot of times they want to open that up to allow for even more. We're going to go into better arguments for abortion in just a few minutes, but first we're going to cover the pro-life side. Their case is pretty simple, and it goes like this. An unborn child is a human life. That's it, okay? This is a human. This is a person. This person has rights, and you can't kill another person, so you can't kill an unborn child. From a very early age, you can tell that this is a tiny human, and it's got plenty of recognizable human features, right? It doesn't take long before you can see it's got a little head and four little limbs and, you know, a torso. At the very moment that it's fertilized, all of the DNA of this child is already contained in those cells. The hair color, the eye color, the shape of their nose, the sound of their voice, uh, a lot of times their height and their build, all of these things are determined the second that that child is conceived. At three weeks old, most of the time the mother hasn't even crossed her mind that she might be pregnant, that embryo already has a heartbeat, which is a sign of life that we will usually use to determine if any child or adult is living. You find an unconscious body, the first thing you do is you check for a heartbeat. In other words, by the time that the parents can even consider whether or not abortion is an option, that baby is already displaying what most people consider the essential signal that it is a living human being. A lot of people want to pick uh, some other milestone, uh, whether it be a heartbeat or brain activity or the ability to feel pain, and they want to use that as the starting point for this is a human being and therefore abortion is okay at any point before that. You can abort before a heartbeat or you can abort before brain activity or whatever. The problem with that, and I'm going to take a quote here from Ben Shapiro, the problem is anytime you draw any line other than the inception of the child, you end up drawing a false line that can also be applied to people who are adults. In other words, if it's a heartbeat you're looking for, you can point to adults who use a pacemaker or have an artificial heart or have their heart stopped during open heart surgery. If it's brain activity you're looking for, you can point to people who are in the coma. In the same video that I pulled, a student at Berkeley says that he thinks that sentience is the sign of life. And, and Ben asks him, does that mean I can stab you in your sleep? No. Well, what if you're in a coma and you might wake up? Can I stab you then? Again, obviously the kid says no because I might wake up. I have potential sentience. He says, you know what else has potential sentience? Being a fetus. It's a pretty solid argument there. Some people might say that the baby isn't wanted. However, plenty of contraceptives are easily available and they're, they're very affordable these days as well. Also, unless you think babies come from the stork, you know that abstinence is also a very reliable option if you're not ready for the responsibility of a child. In other words, you know where babies come from. If you don't want a baby, you can stay away from those things. You add all this stuff up, and the truth becomes pretty clear. Um, an unborn child is a human life, and as a human, it deserves to have its life respected and protected. But is it? 
then what about the pro-choice argument? The pro-choice argument centers around the right to control your own body. Uh, More specifically, I guess, uh, a woman to control her own body. All of us would object to having something put into our bodies without our permission. If something was put into your body without permission or if something harmful was growing there on its own, like maybe you have a tumor or a cyst or a mole, we would elect to have it removed and thrown away as quickly as possible. If a woman owns her body, shouldn't she have the right to remove any parasites or freeloaders? What if the thought of a baby really does present a danger to her livelihood? Now, this is the point where I think a lot of pro-life folks fail to see the reality of the situation. There are plenty of women out there who are in genuinely dangerous situations. Maybe they're homeless or almost homeless. Maybe they're addicted to drugs and they're using regularly. Maybe they live in an abusive household. Or, you know, what if it is no exaggeration that this child is genuinely being born into a horrible, miserable existence that nobody should live through? If you knew that your child was destined for a life of hunger or neglect or abuse or maybe even torture, things that this child is going to carry with them into adulthood if they manage to survive to it, wouldn't you be doing the right thing by simply ending their life early to protect them from that kind of pain? Think of the pain you could spare this child and maybe even spare their children or other people that that they might abuse if they passed it on. Maybe abortion in those cases, maybe it really is an option. Now, if you're pro-life and listening to this, you've got two thoughts running through your head right now. One, she should be using protection and or abstaining. Number two, she needs to leave that situation. She needs to run away. You're right. She should. Those things are both valid points. However, it's not always that easy. Some women feel like they have nowhere to go. Battered women's shelters can be very hard to find and they can be very difficult to live in. You can't bring much of your stuff with you. You can't bring pets. You don't always know how long you can stay there or you don't know where you're going to go when it's time to leave. Also, if you're talking about an abusive household, abuse is as much of a psychological game as it is physical. Abuse victims, they might not, they might feel like they can't fight back. Maybe they don't feel like they don't deserve to fight back. Or maybe they even think that they deserve the abuse that they're getting. And maybe even if it isn't what you might consider full-on abuse or or maybe violent abuse, you know, it's possible that she's being threatened or coerced into sex through the way that her partner is acting or um, she feels like she's doing that just so that she can protect her safety. These situations are very real and they're very common. And a lot of women are in these types of situations. As pro-life people, I think that when we look at people who are in these kinds of situations and this kind of trouble, I think we have a tendency to put them in our shoes more often than we put ourselves in their shoes. Yes, any person in their right mind can spot a dangerous situation and know that they need to get out. They have an obligation to protect themselves and their children, whether it's through fleeing to a safe spot or physically defending themselves. But... People aren't always in their right minds. They don't always have a place to go. And they don't always believe that they can change their lives for the better. Like we mentioned before, maybe they don't always believe that they deserve a better life. 
people who are in the pro-choice camp, a lot of times they'll claim that the pro-life folks only care about children in the womb and then they stop caring once that child is born. And going back to the reasons that I just went over, I think that sometimes they might be right. I also want to point out statistics show us that abortions are just as common in areas and times where abortion is illegal as they are when abortion is legal. So that means that whether or not it's against the law doesn't change whether or not someone chooses to get an abortion. That means that by passing laws that restrict abortion, you are not necessarily saving any lives of unborn children at that point. But what it does do is it puts women who are seeking abortion into more desperate situations and potentially more dangerous situations. This is something that I I can't emphasize enough. When you make something illegal, you don't stop that thing from happening. You just push it underground. Going back to the old law, we should just make drugs illegal. I mean, that, that made them go away, didn't it? The same can be said for abortion. If somebody wants it, they're going to make sure it happens and just... Making laws that say that you can't do that is the wrong way to go about this. What about a third choice, right? Is there anything in the middle? If you listen to this show for any amount of time, this is episode two. Maybe you know me personally. Maybe you've followed along on Twitter or Facebook. You're going to learn one thing. My political ideas are all based on the principle of property rights. In other words, don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. Everything else that we talk about is going to lead back to that premise. All topics, all issues. Is it hurting anybody? Is it taking something that they own? That's what's most important to me. When you put that idea up against the abortion argument, the confusing issue here is that you have two sets of property rights that are kind of resting on top of each other. The baby's body is his property, and the mother's body is her property. Now, if they're at odds over the same space, who wins that dispute? A common allegory would be, I invite you out on my boat for the afternoon. And we head several miles out into the water, and eventually we start having an argument. Um, Maybe I say, Mortal Kombat on Sega Genesis is the best video game ever. And you say, I disagree. It's a very good game, but I think Donkey Kong is the best game ever. And I say, Donkey Kong sucks. And you reply, you know something? You suck. Now this upsets me so much that I tell you to get off my boat. Of course, you're going to say, where am I going to go? There's no other boats around. Can't even see land anymore. I don't care. Get off my boat now. That is going to mean certain death for you. So most of us would agree that I would be wrong to do that to you, even though the boat is my property. If you're not physically harming me, I don't have the right just to take you out there and throw you off to your death. Most people would agree that that would be cruel and that that would probably be murder. However, at the same time, say if you snuck onto the boat or if you were trying to hurt me or steal from me, the scenario gets a lot more muddy again. How do we reconcile this? Dr. Walter Block puts forth a suggestion to try to bridge this gap. In order to protect the rights of the mother by respecting her body, but also to protect the rights of the baby's life, Block suggests a stance that he calls evictionism. Instead of terminating the fetus in the womb and having the woman deliver the corpse, The child is to be safely removed from the woman, and it is placed in care to try to preserve its life and growth. Now, what this does is it allows the woman to remove the unwelcome object from her body, and she does not directly murder the child or doesn't directly, you know, ask a physician to do it for her. 
depending on the age of the child, this could leave a good chance for life or it could mean that, you know, he would probably die. Going back to that, around the fifth month of pregnancy is kind of deciding time for whether or not this baby is going to be able to live outside the womb. But medical technology is constantly improving, and that means that as time goes on, um, the, the chances of a baby living outside of the womb are going to continually increase, and the age of viability is going to continually get younger and younger as well. So the earlier that she has this as we move forward in time is going to mean that hopefully this baby is going to be able to survive. Maybe the child's transferred to a test tube or to a surrogate mother. Um, Maybe they would use an animal womb. Maybe there's any number of solutions that that haven't been invented yet. But we can say with a fair amount of confidence that a a baby that maybe wouldn't have survived 20 years ago has a great shot of surviving today. And the same thing could be said hopefully 20 years forward into the future. That's going to bring up some other questions and concerns, but Dr. Block includes most of those in his article on this, uh, and I'm going to link to that article in the show notes. So if you're interested in reading that, you can, you can click that link and look it up. It's a little bit long, but it, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting read. So this theory offers the best compromise that I've seen to try to appease the wishes of both pro-life and pro-choice communities. Not everybody's going to get everything they want, but perhaps that's a way to, to stop people from going at each other's throats over this and finding something that, that maybe doesn't upset them quite so much. Now, I've laid out a damn good case as to why no human should ever be aborted in the womb. Then, I showed some very compelling reasons as to why maybe an abortion might actually be an acceptable decision, even if it is a painfully difficult decision to make. Then, just to add some icing on the cake, I gave you a perfectly reasonable outside-the-box suggestion as a means of finding a reasonable compromise for people on both sides. At the beginning of the show, I promised you that I would change your mind on abortion. Did I get you to change your stance? No, I didn't. I know that I didn't. Why not? Well, it goes back to the way that our brains process information. Believe it or not, human beings weren't really designed just to sit on Facebook and argue about politics with our aunts and uncles. Long before the days of air conditioning and Fortnite, our ancestors lived in caves, and they also lived in forests and prairies and deserts, too. In case you didn't know, there's a lot of scary stuff out there, right? There's lions and tigers and bears, uh, scorpions, rattlesnakes, leeches. You get it. The dangers never end outside, right? So if you lived way back when and you managed to avoid all of those terrifying things, maybe you eat the wrong plant and you die anyway. Because of this, our brain was designed to trust our instincts. If something seems bad, it probably is. Regardless of the the snuggly fur on that tiger or the beautiful colors on the poisonous berries, our brains learned to seek these things out and to reject them. Our ancestors, they approached those hazards with caution and fear and sometimes even kind of this angry desire to, to fight against those things. And this was an essential defense mechanism because we were literally surrounded by stuff that was trying to kill us. Modern day Australia, I guess. Um, The good news is that it worked. We started from the bottom. Now we're here at the top of the food chain. We're the king of the earth. We 
have survived, and now, fortunately, our life is a whole lot easier than it was for anybody that lived before us. But a lot of those caveman instincts still kind of linger within us, and one of them is that when we are presented with an idea that goes against something we believe, our brain rejects it. In these instances, facts and context don't matter at all. All that matters is that our beliefs are being challenged and our brain often processes that as if it's a life or death situation and it's a force that has to be stopped. To make things even more complicated, emotions will solidify those beliefs into your brains even more than before. What that means is the more emotional someone is about a topic, the more impossible it is to change their mind about that topic. Doesn't matter what it is. Uh, If someone believes with all their heart that the sky is green instead of blue and they're passionate about that belief, there's nothing that you can do to get them to change no matter what. This is why certain subjects like religion and gun control seem so, so hard to gain any ground on. This is also why YouTube videos titled Ben Shapiro Rips Pro-Choice Student at Berkeley, it fails to convert that liberal coworker of yours, right? Now that we know this, it should be both enlightening and maybe a little disturbing at the same time. I mean, on one hand, hopefully it helps you to not be so frustrated when, say, you've laid out the perfect arguments on abortion and your listener still just refuses to give in. On the other hand, you got to wonder, what kind of ideas am I too stubborn and too emotionally invested in to change? Try not to beat yourself up about it too much. I mean, it is the way that we're all programmed, but try to keep that in mind next time you get ready to go all in on some debate on Twitter. Maybe you remember to choose your battles a little bit more wisely, and if you can see things getting too emotional, maybe you just admit that it's literally impossible to change their mind if they're in that state. Instead, what you should do, you should stay calm, you should watch for opportunities and topics where cooler heads prevail, and save yourself the stress of going up against those keyboard warriors, especially on the most charged topics. I'm telling you, this is something I do. I don't talk to many people about abortion, and I don't talk to a lot of people about gun control. Those are two things where it is going to be very difficult no matter how many facts you have, no matter how solid your argument is. Those kind of things are so emotional for people that you're going to have a very, very, very difficult time getting them to change their mind. Um, In future episodes, we're going to talk about some other ways that you might be able to help convince other people to see your side or you might be able to kind of tap into their emotions a little bit and, and help draw them over to your side. But ultimately, they've got to feel like it's their idea and they've got to come over on their own free will. You know, you're not going to do the clockwork orange thing and and tie them to a chair and hold their eyes open until they see the light. It's a lot more complicated and a lot more difficult than that. And there are going to be times where you flat out cannot change people. So I never told you I was going to change your stance on abortion, but I did tell you that I would change your mind. And hopefully I did. Um, hopefully now you're willing to admit that maybe it's just a little bit more complicated than you made it out to be. You know, maybe it's not so plain and simple. And hopefully after you learn how our brains handle those emotional ideas, maybe you'll go into those conversations with a little bit more clarity and a little bit less disappointment if you don't win everyone involved over to your side. You know, as we go into future episodes, we, we're going to talk about other ways that, that's going to help you hopefully convince people to move a little bit closer to your side, make them a little bit more open to hearing your ideas. And um, we're also going to be pointing out the way that the media and other advertisers and politicians are trying to convince you to join their side, even when you don't realize it. 
So um, that sums up the second test episode of the Make America Garrett Again podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Follow me along on Twitter at twitter.com slash Garrett Again. That's Garrett with just one R. Or Make America Garrett Again on Facebook at facebook.com slash Garrett Again. And again, that's Garrett with just one R. Hey, do me a favor and shoot me a quick message and let me know who you are and where you're listening from. I'd also love to hear what you think of the show so far and what topics you'd like to cover here. All right, until next time, this has been your cure for the mainstream media. Later. Later.